This is Engage the Word with Elizabeth Rodriguez, a podcast created to equip and encourage you to pursue God by engaging His Word. I'm your host, Elizabeth Rodriguez. Do you know how some moments impact you so deeply that they are forever etched into your memory? I'm talking about the kinds of moments that you vividly remember every detail about where you were, what you were doing, and how you felt. Well, today I get to share one such life-changing moment with you. Now, I'm fully prepared for you to think that I'm a bit nerdy or weird when I reveal this moment that, for lack of a better phrase, rocked my world. My prayer is that you will hang with me all the way to the end today, because if you've never heard this before, what I'm about to share might be life-changing for you too. If it isn't new information, I pray that this reminder will stoke the flames of your affections for Jesus. Okay, so here goes. Today, I'm sharing a profound truth a fact that helped me to understand the Bible the way God intended with Jesus Christ at the center. Together, the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament tell one story. It's the greatest story ever told. The first time I heard someone zoom out and teach an airplane view of the scriptures was Sunday, January 10th, 2016. I was sitting in one of the modular buildings behind my church during a women's Bible study class. What's shocking about this, at least to me, is that I had been a believer for 17 years and I had been participating in women's Bible studies for 10 years at that point. Yet I had never once heard anyone connect the dots of God's story. Not once. So as I sat there listening, the dots began to connect for me all at once. It blew my mind and ignited my heart. It literally brought me to tears. Every time I remember that moment, I think of Luke chapter 24. Follow along with me in your Bible, on your device, or just simply listen as I read. So here in Luke 24, it's on the day of Jesus's resurrection, and he's walking along the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples. I'm going to start in verse 15 and read through to verse uh, 32, okay? God's word says, while they were talking... And discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. 
but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So the two men go from here and they go looking for the apostles in Jerusalem to tell them what had happened. While they were talking, Jesus appears again and he shows them his scars and he even eats a piece of fish. And then he says, if you look down in verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So in verse 44, when Jesus says Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he is referring to the Old Testament scriptures. So essentially, Jesus is explaining how to read and understand the Old Testament with him at the center of the story. All of it, the entire Old Testament, finds its fulfillment in Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just part of the story. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the story of Scripture. As one of my pastors once put it, before the foundation of the world, God sovereignly planned to create a people for himself, living in right relationship with him, in the place that he created for them. The means for achieving this purpose was always Jesus. Jesus was plan A. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God is at work in Christ, 
reconciling humanity back to himself. Now, because I am a fan of alliteration, my favorite way to summarize the grand narrative of scripture is using the six C's from Matthew S. Harmon's book, Asking the Right Questions. So here are the six C's. Number one, creation. Number two, corruption. Number three, covenants. Number four, Christ. Number five, church. And number six, consummation. So if you read Harmon's book, you will actually notice that his second C is crisis. I personally prefer the word corruption because I think that it better explains why humanity needs reconciliation in Christ. So let's go through these six C's. Number one, creation. The Bible says that there is one true living God who created all things and sustains all things. He is not bound by time because there is no beginning and no end to him. He is eternal. His word tells us how time as we know it began. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Creation was a gracious act of God to share his love with people. Though complete within himself, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, chose to create something out of nothing. He created the heavens and the earth, everyone and everything in them. But why? Well, God chose to create as an extension of the perfect fellowship that he enjoys within himself. He did not need us. Nevertheless, God chose to make it possible for humanity to participate in fellowship with him. God created man and woman, according to Genesis 1.27, in his image, according to his likeness. And they were created, we were created, for fellowship, for relationship with him. God even blessed Adam and Eve. He said to them in Genesis 1.28, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule every creature on earth. Genesis 1.31 says, All that he made was very good. So God had provided everything Adam and Eve would need in the garden. And he gave them only one command. Genesis 2.17 says, From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. God is holy. He is a wise and loving Father. He provides boundaries for our protection, not for our punishment. So in the beginning, there was shalom in Eden, peace in every sense of the word. So the second C is corruption. Human beings are not robots. Obedience is a choice. God wanted Adam and Eve to trust him. Psalm 9 verse 10 says, And those who know your name will put their trust in you. A.W. Tozer writes, The word name means character, 
plus reputation. And they that know what kind of God you are will put their trust in you. Faith is confidence in the character of God. So there was no reason for Adam or Eve to doubt the character of God. But the serpent raised doubts by twisting God's command. In essence, he says to Eve, Is God really good? Does he really have your best interest at heart? Or is he holding out on you? Now, according to the scriptures, while Adam stands idly by, Eve is deceived. She takes the forbidden fruit and eats. Then Eve gave it to Adam, who also ate. The first Adam failed to trust and obey. From that point forward, sin corrupted humanity. Throughout the Old Testament, we see a pattern of disobedience and rebellion in the human heart. Adam and Eve did not just break a rule. They broke their relationship with God. Adam and Eve made a choice. Instead of loving God and turning toward him in obedience and submission to his authority as their creator, they chose to love themselves turning away from God in disobedience and defiant rebellion, choosing to judge good and evil for themselves. Mark Lederbach writes, Humans chose not to believe in the ultimate goodness of God. Humans chose what they believed would be autonomy and freedom. They chose to seek self-governance in an attempt to be like God, in a manner never intended for them, and actually not possible for them as contingent beings. They pursued a treasure that was not there, and by doing so, they became bent in on themselves and actually less like God than they were before their sin. So sin goes beyond our behavior on the surface. It runs deep within our nature to our very heart. J.I. Packer describes our hearts as motivationally twisted. Sin is not simply bad things that we do. Scripture tells us that righteousness is tied to right relationship with God, not righteous acts. Like a rock cast into still water, the ripple effect of that one decision was catastrophic. The Bible tells us that the penalty for sin is spiritual death, eternal separation from God. Though Adam and Eve didn't immediately suffer physical death, they did immediately forfeit spiritual life. Every human descendant of Adam and Eve is spiritually dead. We are all bad off because our relationship with the one who gives us life is broken. This is why we all need a savior, one who can redeem us and restore us to right relationship with God. Though Adam and Eve deserved God's wrath and judgment, there is good news. As the story unfolds, we see 
Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more because God offers hope to humanity. Right there in Genesis 3.15, the Lord God said, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. T.D. Alexander writes, in an act of profound grace, God promises that the serpent will eventually be overcome by the offspring of the woman. The one linked to the special family line at the heart of Genesis, the serpent will be overthrown by one who is fully obedient to God. God planned to sovereignly and graciously intervene. He would provide a new Adam. Though there will be adversity, God promised that victory will come through Eve's offspring. At this point, the Old Testament masterfully begins to paint a picture of the promised offspring who will make right relationship with God possible. Every detail revealed about this offspring is like the skillful stroke of a brush, painting a portrait of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, as a consequence of their broken relationship with God and disobedience, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden into the wilderness. Outside of the garden, everything is broken. Adam and Eve must live on land that is cursed, literally God-forsaken. And they must raise a family in a corrupt world where sin rules. Before long, Adam and Eve do have two sons, so the question looms large. Will one of these be the promised offspring? No. <laughs> if you know the story, Cain kills his brother Abel. And we see how quickly sin and corruption escalate. This is the horror of rebellion. Righteous Abel is dead, but a ray of hope remains because God provides another son for Adam and Eve, and his name is Seth. The promised offspring will come through him. Now, Things go from bad to worse fast. By the time we get to Genesis 6, mankind is fully corrupt and the earth is filled with violence. Genesis 6 verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Eric Raymond writes, as the Bible story develops, people continue to kill one another. They do not value life. They do not, do not value God's authority. They do not value God's promises. And they do not value God's people. At so many turns, it looks like the promise is hanging in the balance. Yet, things are not always as they seem. Again, God intervenes with a catastrophic flood. But all is not lost because God will save a remnant for himself through 
Noah. He could have wiped everyone out, but he didn't. Why? No humans, no Jesus. Though Noah was a righteous man, he wasn't perfect. Sin got on the ark with Noah and his family, and sin gets off the ark with them. The problem of sin will continue to rear its ugly head over and over. Meanwhile, God faithfully continues to work out his plan to crush the serpent and redeem humanity through Noah's son, Shem. The third C is covenants. And there are several covenants throughout the Old Testament. And I'm just going to hit on a few of the most important ones. The Lord is a sovereign, covenant-keeping God. He chooses Abraham, a descendant of Shem, and makes an unconditional promise, a solemn oath that he alone can and will fulfill. In Genesis 12, 2 and 3, he says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then Genesis 13:15 says, All the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. And then Genesis 17, 6 and 7, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Did you notice all of those I wills? I will make. I will make. It's God who's going to establish this covenant. It is not dependent upon Abraham. The blessing in chapter 12, verse 3, is of reference to the promised offspring, the one who will crush the serpent. And from chapter 17, verse 6, we learn that this won't be any ordinary man. This is going to be a family line with royal expectations. Kings will come from Abraham. God promised Abraham a people, a land, and a relationship with him. Remember, God is creating a people for himself to dwell in right relationship with him in the place he created for them for their good and for his glory. As Genesis continues, the portrait of the promised one becomes clearer and clearer. The offspring will come from Abraham's son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons. The promised offspring will come from Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons whose tribes become the nation of Israel. The promised offspring will come from the tribe of Judah. Because of a great famine, they end up in the land of Egypt, where Abraham's descendants were, according to Exodus 1-7, fruitful 
and they increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Out of fear, Pharaoh enslaved God's people who cried out to the Lord for deliverance. God responds by choosing Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. When they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai, God chooses to reveal himself to them there. Exodus 19 verses 4 through 6 says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God will preserve the line of Abraham's offspring through this nation. He sets Israel apart and makes a covenant with them. He teaches them how to live in his presence, and he gives them the land promised to Abraham. If they remain faithful and obey God's commands, he will bless them. If they are unfaithful and disobey, the consequence will be God's judgment. Well, Israel fails to trust and obey, just like Adam and Eve did. The people ask for a king. They want to be like the surrounding pagan nations, though God set them apart to be different for a different purpose, to be a light to the nations. God does choose to appoint a king who will protect them and point them to him, King David, a descendant of Judah. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David and promises to establish his throne and the throne of his offspring forever. His will be an eternal kingdom. After the reign of King Solomon, David's son, the nation of Israel splits, and it becomes the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is made up of the ten tribes of Israel, and the southern kingdom ends up being two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. So God keeps his promise to David in spite of the fact that most of his descendants rebel against the Lord and lead the people into idolatry. As the kings went, so did the people of God. Still, in spite of their sinful rebellion, God graciously chooses to send prophets over and over to warn his people of the judgment that will come as a result of their disobedience. But they do not listen. God is holy and just. He eventually brings the judgment he promised, and the rebellious nation suffers the consequences of their sin. Assyria obliterates the northern kingdom, and later Babylon destroys Jerusalem, and the southern kingdom is taken into exile. After 70 years, a remnant of God's exiled people do return to restore Jerusalem. Physical restoration occurs, but will God's people experience the spiritual restoration they so deeply need? There is hope in the promise of a new covenant. 
in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And then in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 24 through 27, it says, They will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. God will provide a way for his people to obey him. He will dwell within them and they will know him personally. This is what the promised serpent-crushing offspring will do. The one who is the son of Eve, the son of Seth, the son of Noah, the son of Shem, the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, the son of Judah, the son of of David. The fourth C is Christ. When Christ finally comes in the New Testament, we discover that this promised offspring is none other than the Son of God. He possesses that which Adam and Eve and all of their descendants after them lacked, spiritual life. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. John 17 3 says, And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then John chapter 1 verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is Emmanuel, 
God with us. Fully God and fully man, the Son crossed the divide and did what no one else could ever do. Jesus lived a sinless life in perfect obedience to the Father. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. Jesus loved the Father and overcame the temptation to choose his own way. At the tree, the second Adam chose to trust and obey the Father. While we were still sinners, Jesus died an atoning death on the cross, bearing our sin and shame, dying in our place as our substitute. Though he never sinned, he chose to bear the wrath of God to save us, taking the punishment we deserve upon himself. Our sin was imputed to him and his righteousness was imputed to us. Why would God do this? Because it was the only way for us to be in right relationship with him. We cannot fix the relationship that we broke. So God intervened and offers us life in and through Jesus. By grace, Through faith in Christ, we are redeemed and our relationship with God is restored forever. We must humble ourselves as Christ did and give God his rightful place in our lives. The awesome thing is the story didn't end with Jesus dying on the cross. On the third day, he rose to life overcoming our greatest enemies, sin, death, and Satan himself. And not only that, his resurrection is proof that his payment, his life, was sufficient. And there's more. Acts 1-3 says, He, Jesus, presented himself alive to the apostles whom he had chosen, speaking about the kingdom of God. After 40 days, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. The Jewish people who crucified Jesus awaited political deliverance for themselves. They awaited a king like David who would conquer Rome and restore Jewish rule. But God's sovereign plan from the beginning was deliverance of a different kind. Jesus, who is God, Savior, and King, came to bring spiritual deliverance. He came to transform hearts and lives. That deliverance is still available today for all who choose to trust in him. The fifth C is church, the church. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. He charged the apostles to go, and even us, to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that he commanded. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he promised to return for us. In the meantime, 
he calls his disciples to live in community with one another, encouraging each other to obedience, encouraging each other to love God and love others as we glorify him and spread the good news of the gospel. They and we do not fulfill our king's mission alone. On the day of Pentecost, his disciples received the Holy Spirit, who equipped and empowered them to live as he had commanded. Acts chapter 2, verse 36 through 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. When we trust in Christ by grace through faith, we too receive the Holy Spirit. As we read through the Bible, there's a sense of both the already and the not yet. As New Testament believers, the already is the fact that redemption has come in and through the promised offspring, Jesus Christ. The not yet is the fact that full consummation of God's plan will not occur until Jesus returns. So in the meantime, we must remember that we are sojourners in this world, living as citizens of heaven. This is not our home. The last C, the sixth C, is consummation. God's purpose will prevail. Jesus will return in glory. His people will dwell in right relationship with him in the place he created for them, the new heavens and the new earth. I'm going to read to you a couple of passages from Revelation. First, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will, will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then Revelation chapter 22, also verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, 
but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The Bible is a story about how to have life in and through Jesus Christ. Have you trusted in him? Romans 10, verse 9, 12, and 13 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Seek him with all of your heart. The Bible is his story. Thank you so much for listening today. Join me next time as we continue to engage the word together. To God be the glory.